Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 31. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Here is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we're going to start with show and tell this morning. So we have a picture for you guys to see. This is my dad and my grandmother, my dad's mom. And I'm guessing my dad at this point is uh, close to my age. Uh, he didn't live to be my age, and so he's obviously younger than me, technically, but he's somewhere in his 40s in this picture here. And you can tell a lot about my dad in this picture. You might start with uh, the haircut. <laughs> so this was a haircut that I saw often on my dad. He was somehow always a little bit too busy to get a haircut and always a little bit too aloof to care much about his hair. And so I uh, have many pictures of sitting in the backseat of the car on the way to church, and that's, that's the haircut he, he had. He had his mind on more important things, you could argue. That was true, actually. Uh, you see, you see the, the smile, it's a little bit awkward. Uh, smiles were not natural to my dad. He was, he was not a, an unhappy man, necessarily, and he, and he certainly loved me and, the, and our family, but smiles was not, uh, maybe not the dominant mood of my father. But he did smile. Uh, there's proof right there. And you notice, notice the clothing? You know, it's not the cutting edge of fashion. And so he and I, you know, I'm, I'm, I am truly uh, his son. So not, not the cutting edge of fashion, and yet not, not totally lost, you know, fashion-wise. You know, that was probably somewhere in the 80s, and, you know, in the 80s, uh, a look like that would have been totally fine. That's actually how men went to work, often in suits and ties. Um, and you notice he's, he's holding the arm of his mom. And there's something about that that also models my dad. He was fa- very faithful to his family. Um, 
in season, out of season, whatever was going on, he was faithful to his family. And there was something about him also which did what he could to support the family. Uh, not all families make that easy, right? Uh, but he did what he could to support his mother and his family. And so there's a, there's a strength, there's a faithfulness, there's a, there's a manliness in that, just trying to, to honor his own mother and his own family by doing that. So this is an image of my father. And this image communicates a lot. But that image is not my dad. I mean, I would love to talk to my dad now. But he would be much older than that now. He would be 80, 83 this year. Uh, much older than that. And yet, that does represent, in a very real way, my father. And you can take that down. Thanks, James. That's what an image does. It somehow captures something that's true. If it's an accurate image. It captures something that's true, and yet it's also completely different than the real thing. No one would ever in a million years mistake that, that 2D photograph for my actual father, ever. You would never make that mistake. A picture of a person and a person, especially if you know the person, is so very different, even if there, there is some reality to that image. And this morning, we're going to think about that. We're going to think about an image versus the reality. The image is us. We are the image. We are the photograph that the world sees of the living, the true and living God. And one of the great marvels, one of the great wonders of humanity is that humanity is made in the image of God. Not just Christians, but all people are made in the image of God. Not just on our best days, on all of our days, we are in the image of God. It's a very powerful idea. There's a lot of implications to this idea, which we can't unpack this morning. We'll, we'll, we'll throw out several, but we at least want to get some basic understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God and what implications it has for our life. So our series is from the book of Genesis, right from the start. What was true of humanity at the start? So it was right from the start. And what was right about humanity at the start? And in some ways, a lot of what we say about the image of God and man is is what was true then in the, in, the, in the Garden of Eden. We'll think about what's true now, east of Eden, but especially what was true of us then. But that does capture in true and real ways what is always true of humanity, what was true at the start. And these words, as the Old Testament, as Jesus, as the New Testament testifies, these are the words of Moses. And we find here as well, based on that same cloud of witnesses, the Old Testament, Jesus, the New Testament, this is actual history. This really happened. So what they say, what Moses said, uh, uh, was said and, and was done, was said and done. But there's also inspired theology here. Not just accurate history, but inspired theology. So we want to learn from this theology. So these weeks, we've said it a couple times, but we're talking about anthropology, which is a very long word that just means the study of man. You know, the ology is the study of, and then the anthropos is man, the study of man. Now, my son is taking an anthropology class at NC State. His anthropology class is very different than what you're about to hear. <laughs> so we're actually in the, in the third week of studying anthropology. So the first week was on sex and gender. The second week was on the issue of transgenderism. Today is the image of God. And then we're going to look at the Sabbath next week, and then marriage, and then the fall. And the fall is a big deal when it comes to anthropology. You don't understand humanity without understanding the fall. And we'll, we'll see that somewhat today. 
Three, three points today. First is the special act of our creation. The special act of our creation. And then secondly is the image of God. And then thirdly is the image of God east of Eden. So the special act of God, the image of God, and then the image of God east of Eden. And our goal is, in some ways it's very simple. A lot of these sermons have the same basic goal, which is to understand and then live in light of it. Understand it and then live in light of it. And so this morning, that's our, that's our same goal. We want to understand what it means to be made in the image of God, and we want to live in light of it. We want all of our relationships to be marked by an understanding of the image of God. So let's pray. Father, our creator, the creator of all people and all things, you are the father over all creation. As Paul said, you are the one by whom every family is named. We look to you as our source, as our origin, as the, as the definer of who we are and what we are. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what it means to be made in your image. What an amazing idea that we are made in your image and that all people we meet are made in your image. So we pray, Lord, for an accurate understanding of that. And we pray, Lord, that today and all days we would live in the good of it, in the accuracy of it. Be glorified this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, number one, the special act of our creation. So this is, in some ways, this is a point of contrast. Animals and the creation were made in a particular way, and then we were made in a very different way. And that, that has meaning attached to it. So as Don read, we know this is the sixth day of creation. So verses 24 to 31 are the sixth day of creation. <clears throat> so that's why in verse 31 it says, the sixth day. Now the sixth day in some ways has a you know, continuation on uh, the next page of chapter 2 of Genesis. But here we are in the sixth day. In the first part of the sixth day, some things are made before we get there. So in verses 24 and 5, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, normally when it says, and God saw that it was good, you get the day, uh, the number of the day, the sixth day, the first day, the fourth day, whatever. Now, this, in this sixth day, God saw that it was good, and then there's a, there's a part two to the sixth day. But let's, let's uh, hold off on that. Let's get to part one here. Now, a lot is made on the sixth day at this part, these first two verses. And like all the days prior, God simply says, let there be. Let the earth do this, and there was. In this case, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And that according to their kinds refrain pops up four or five times in, the, in, these, uh, in these first two verses. And so animals are made by uh, divine fiat. Not to be confused with the car, fiat. The word fiat is just a Latin word, a fancy way of saying by decree, divine decree. God creates by decree. He says, and there is. And, there was, and it was so. So when God's making the creatures, he speaks and they're made. They come to be. They come into existence. And there was. Man is made in a very different way. I mean, God's going to say, let us make man in our image. But it's not, not as simple as, and then there was. We get, to, we get to 
part two of day six in Genesis chapter two, and we see that the way God made the man, Adam, is he formed him from the dust of the earth, and then he breathed the breath of life into him, you know, breathed his soul into him, as it were. That's a very engaged, interactive way of building. Very different than divine fiat, where you just speak, let there be, and there is. And it's not a question of how big the thing is. I mean, we are, in case you haven't noticed, we are individually a lot smaller than the universe. So it's not an issue of size. Well, for small things, he speaks, and for big things, he says, uh, he, or he has to get engaged. No, he speaks a universe into existence. But for this one individual man, he, he is physically involved. And then the woman, the same way, a special act of creation. He could simply say, let there be a woman, and then there could be a woman. But that's not how he did it. So he had the man fall asleep in this very kind of dramatic series of events. He had the man fall asleep. He took a rib from the man. I don't think you're going to need this. Took the, 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 the rib from the man, and then from his DNA, from his, from his body, he formed and fashioned this woman. In, the, in, the, in, the, in terms of divine power, totally unnecessary for him to do that. Why did he do that? He did that to communicate something about humanity. We are different. The myriads and myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels, God just says, let there be. Let there be a bazillion angels. And there was a bazillion angels. But for this individual man, this individual woman, he's involved, engaged. And that's meaning. It's telling us the man and the woman are different. There's a special crowning moment here when, when God creates man and, the man and the woman. It's interesting when you read older theologians on the six days of creation, they actually never, you know, unlike today's, you know, our, our, our science-filled mentality as we look back to the days of creation, we wonder how could it happen so quickly, right? So we have to make, we have to make elaborate arguments about why it could happen so, so, so quickly. You know, John gave us a really useful phrase. It was a week of miracles, but when, the, when older theologians read this, they didn't wonder that. They wondered, why did God take so long to do it? Why did he take six days to do something when he could have done at the snap of his fingers? He could have said, let it all be, and it would be. Because there's meaning. God took six days to tell us things about those six days. Why did he create the man and the woman in this way? To tell us things about the man and the woman. They're different. They're special. They're uniquely made in his image. And then that the uniqueness comes out also in what, he's, what, we, what we read in the verse, first part of verse 26. Then God said, let us make, let us. Well, that's interesting. God never said, let us do anything before that. This is a moment of, as uh, John Calvin called it, a moment of deliberation. Not, a, not deliberation in the sense of wondering, you know, what do I do now? This is, a, this is an awesome universe, but what do we do now? What would be really cool to add to the universe? It's not deliberation in that sense. We're wondering, man is a complicated thing, so how do we do this? So it's not deliberation in that sense. It's simply God condescending to our level to reveal something about us and something about him as well. You know, at a, in a sense, he's an us and not simply an I. And he's... He's, this is a, a moment that underscores the significance of humanity as well. 
God is, in a sense, this is a dramatic pause in the action so that we would know that, oh, this is a big deal that's coming here. And, you know, the us is, is a, it's a, it's a, it's a Trinitarian hint. You know, we don't get a full-blown Trinity doctrine in the Old Testament. It's not until the New Testament we get that. But here is a, it's a strong Trinitarian hint. And we know that this isn't God speaking to, you know, an angelic heavenly host or anything like that because he says, let us make man in our image. We're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of God. So let us make man in our image after our likeness. Quote from Herman Bavinck uh, as he's thinking about the man and the woman and the way that they're made. The soul that's breathed into them, the bodies and souls that they have. He says, God first created man, his body coming from the dust of the earth, his soul created by the breath of life breathed in from above. With the body, man stands in fellowship with the earth. With the spirit, which is from above, man is related to heaven. In a special sense, a human person is a product of God. A person in his image and likeness, his child and his race. And this special act of creativity on God's part doesn't stop with just Adam and Eve. Every single time a person is made, there's a special act of divine creativity. Not in the sense that, not in the way that it happened in, in Genesis 1 and 2. But we, we, we read this actually in our responsive reading earlier. But this is from Psalm 139, very familiar passage to us. So this is King David reflecting on God the Creator and what what God did for King David when he was in the womb. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So we don't need to imagine any kind of literal knitting, you know, where God is the, the microbiologist assembling our cells or whatever. But it does communicate that he is actively involved in our creation. Our cells are exactly the way he wants our cells to be. As much as we might wish they were different, our cells are exactly the way he wants our cells to be because he knitted us together in our mother's womb. A lot of application for this, this special act of creation. But at least for starters, this is why we are passionately and adamantly pro-life. Why do we care about life in the womb? Because of truths like this. Humans are special creations. All humans everywhere are special creations. We care about them from conception to death. And another truth that we'll see as we, as we, continue, as we continue this, it becomes more clear, but this is also why we're passionately anti-racist. Why? why do we look at another race and say, ah, a lost cousin? We don't say you're something different because you're a different race from me. We say, no, you're a lost cousin. Because somewhere back in our family tree, we have the same parents, Adam and Eve. We're just cousins. We're all made in the image of God, and so we are passionately pro-life, we're passionately anti-racist. Tons we could say about that at another time. Point two, the image of God. Now we want to think about what it actually means that we're made in the image of God. We have to unpack this a little bit. We've already said some basic things, which is that we're somehow like God uniquely, and yet we're also different than God. He makes universes, we don't. But we want to unpack this 
a bit more. So verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, Moses is writing this in a culture that would be awash in statues and temples. They would, have, they would understand the image of a god, the, the representation of a god. You go to, into a, a temple or a place of worship, and what you find in there is there's going to be some image, uh, probably a 3D image, a statue of some kind, that's going to model what that god is like. And it's going to be... You know, it's going to be a, a bull or something with a lion's head or some kind of grotesque, bizarre figure that somehow communicates strength or fertility or something like that. But somehow the, the image represents the God. And they would have some sense that wherever that image is, the God is also. So, you, you know, a king conquers a land, he's going to set up a temple and, and his own God uh, so that, that that land as well can worship his God. And Israel is told dozens and dozens and dozens of times, do not worship images, images of false gods, and don't create an image of the true God. It it cuts both ways. Because you get confused on what that image is. At some point, you're going to get confused. And so God speaks the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. And when they conquered the land of Canaan, they were told to destroy all the images. And when they didn't, they would eventually bow down and worship those images, fall into false worship, and God would punish them in different ways. But there's one image of God that he does allow, and it's the one that he makes, and that's us. We are the image of God. Not so that people can bow down and worship us, by no means. But we are the one one image that he does allow. Now, at this point in the Bible storyline, we're not exactly sure what it means to be made in the image of God. So we, we actually do have to let the, the, the rest of the Bible inform what is God like, what are we like, and, and therefore what is, what is similar and what is different. And so I'm going to give you eight aspects of the image of God. And we'll see if that's entirely too many or not. But I think it's, I think it's the perfect number. So we'll... we'll We'll go to this. What was fascinating reading on the image of God is, uh, of all the authors I read, uh, everyone had their own understanding of what the image of God was like, and they were all very plausible. Because essentially what you're getting at is, how are we like God and how are we different? And there's, just, there's a lot of things you could say about that. But one that came up often, well, let me read the full list. Do we have, do we have, do we have that list? Let me read the full list first. So the image of God is in... Our soul, our soul's faculties, that's just a fancy way of saying abilities or capacities. Our soul's faculties, our virtues, our body, definitely have to qualify that one, but in a sense we'll see. Our original home and paradise, our dominion, our relationships or our duality and unity, very fancy way of you know, thinking about the man, woman, one flesh, our relationships, and then finally our sonship or daughtership. Our sonship, daughtership. 
Now, the one that came up in almost every list and in every discussion was our soul. We have this non-physical part of ourselves, this non-physical part of ourselves which thinks and feels and reasons and it, it energizes and, and, and makes our body do things like spread its arms when it's preaching sermons, things like that, or speak loudly so that people can hear me when I speak in a sermon. What's well, my soul telling my body to do things? And the thoughts I'm communicating are my soul's thoughts. Our soul is our spirit, is our heart. Probably the most common word that's, that when you think of this internal, non-physical part of us, probably the most common word in the Bible uh, uh, to describe that is the heart. So you, you see, if you, once you um, see what the heart does, you realize it does all the things that the soul does. It thinks, it feels, it longs for, it reasons, it does all those things. Spirit is another word for what's this thing inside of us. And so, when, so Stephen, at his martyrdom, in Acts chapter 7, as he's being stoned, first Christian martyr, as he's being stoned, he, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. My body is about to give out. It's about to die. He knows that. And so as, it's, as his body is dying, he says to the Lord to receive my spirit. Obviously, the same prayer that Jesus prayed uh, when he was being crucified. Uh, Father, receive my spirit. Although in this case, it's prayed to the Lord Jesus. And the, the thing with our, our soul, which makes it like God, is our soul is invisible. Our soul will live forever. Our soul isn't going to die. Our soul is going to live forever. So that immortality aspect of our soul, it reflects God who is eternal. Our soul is a unity. It does all these different things, but it's one, just like God is one. There's a simplicity in God. More we could say on that. So that's our soul. And then, then we tap into what the soul does. These faculties of our soul, you know, like I said, it thinks, it reasons, or the heart the mind and the will, you know, the heart that has all these longings and affections and dreams and desires, our mind that, that reasons and analyzes and thinks, and then our will, our heart, mind, and will. We desire something, and so we pursue it. We choose something, we do it. We're doing that all the time, actually. We're choosing to do things and not do other things. So that, those are our faculties, and those mirror God. And those separate us from, from animals. You know, as much as you try to put a soul onto a dog or a cat, they, they just don't have one. <laughs> they, can, they can think in a very reflexive uh, kind of way, but not, you know, no cat or dog ever looked at you and wondered, what is it really like to be a person? They never had that thought in their heads. Whereas you might, you might, be, th- you might be trying to figure out, what is my cat thinking right now? They're thinking, you need to do something for me. That's what, a, that's what all cats are thinking. What is the dog thinking? You are great. You feed me. You shelter me. I owe allegiance to you. Well, it's not even thinking those things, is it? Our soul's faculties separate us. And then there's our virtues. There's, a, there's a, an original righteousness that we had in the Garden of Eden, an original righteousness that, that Adam had, that Eve had, you know, there was a period of time before they sinned. You know, so during that time, there was an obedience. There was a, a, a righteousness in the sense they had not sinned. They were following God's laws. They were in harmony with the living God and with one another. It didn't last long, but it was there. And the thing with, the, with the, our, our righteousness in the garden is that it could be lost. 
in the new heavens and new earth, we're going to have a righteousness that can't be lost. We won't lose it. But it was nonetheless there. There was an original righteousness in the garden. So there's a, so integrity, holiness, those things speak to our righteous God. And then our body, this is, this is an interesting one. We don't want to go off the rails here. God is spirit. Jesus tells us, John 4, 24, God is spirit. In other words, he has no body, no physical body. He is spirit. But the heavens declare the glory of God. And we, we saw from Romans a couple weeks ago that his invisible attributes, kind of the thing inside of him, is made visible through the creation. So there's a sense in which our bodies do that. There's, there's this invisible, impenetrable thing inside of us, our souls, and it's actually through our body that other people get to know our souls. So in that sense, our bodies mirror God. One author even said that our ears remind us that God hears our prayers. And our eyes remind us that God sees us, whatever we're doing, positively and negatively. He sees us. Our voice points to the fact that God speaks. He communicates. Our hands and our feet even point to the fact that God acts in our lives. He's not just a distant observer. He acts in our lives. We had a home in paradise, fifth, our original home in paradise. You know, Jesus told the thief on the cross who was whose body was dying, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. So we once lived in paradise, in Eden. And one day, we who are in Christ are going to live in the new heaven and new earth. And that reminds us of God's very presence. Wherever God's presence is, that's paradise. That's where he lives. We live there, we will live there again. And then our dominion, right after we're made, there's this attention drawn to our dominion. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. It's a, it's a relative dominion. We are vice regents. That word comes up a lot when you think about Adam and Eve. They were vice regents of the living God. He's the king of kings. They have delegated authority. But it's real authority. They had authority to have dominion and subdue the earth to take care of the earth, to transform it according to their own wills and desires. Their dominion was supposed to be exercised ever and always under his authority, under his dominion. And things went horribly wrong when they stopped doing that. But that dominion is a real side of who God is. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator and ruler the master of all things. That is our God. And we can think of our relationships. The triune God is three and one. One God, three persons, in unity, in relationship, always has been, is, and always will be. And so our relationships, the, the Adam and Eve made male and female, and yet then made to be one flesh. There's that same kind of unity. And Duality. So there's a duality in unity. But it is important that Adam and Eve image God. There's a sense in which Adam and Eve individually image God. And there's a sense in which Adam and Eve are both necessary to image God fully. Herman Babbick has a great quote on this from his book, The Christian Family. He says, The woman herself 
seen as a human being, bears the image and likeness of God fully as much as the man does. The creation story in Genesis shows us clearly in the fact that both together are said to have been created in God's image. Not merely one of them, but both. And not the one separate from the other, but man and woman together, in mutual relation, each created in his or her own manner, and each in a special dimension created in God's image, and together displaying God's likeness. For this reason, the Lord compares himself not only to a father who takes pity on his children, but also to a mother who cannot forget her nursing child. He chastens like a father, but he also comforts like a mother and replenishes for the loss of both. Together in mutual fellowship, they bear the divine image. God himself is the creator of duality in unity. Now, we don't want to get confused there and think that God is you know, sort of neither father nor mother. He is father. He's masculine in that sense, although you can't ascribe a, a gender or a sex to him in the same way for us. So he is father. But as father, these, both these sides are there. He chastens like a father. He comforts like a mother. He pities, as a father should, his, his children, their, his wayward children, and also He's like a mother who cannot forget her nursing child. The last one is our sonship. Another side of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we are his offspring, his children. In Genesis 5, just a couple couple chapters after what we're looking at here, Adam has a child. And the way Adam, this child is described is very important for what we're talking about. So Genesis 5 verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Well, Seth was like Adam, and yet Seth was different than Adam. But the key is that aspect of being a child, that was his child. The child was the image of the parent. The child was the image of the father. And when you fast forward into Acts 17, Paul is talking to uh, uh, his listeners in Athens, and he's describing God. He's trying to communicate God to a people who did not know God. And he said this, Acts 17, verse 29, he said, being then God's offspring, being then God's offspring, so he's himself and his listeners, both of them, all of them, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. All of us are God's offspring. That becomes true at a whole different level when we are saved and we're we're given the spirit of adoption as sons. But it is true of all people. They are all God's offspring. And we see the same idea of of, of being a child of God in the genealogy of Jesus. So in Luke's genealogy, he starts with Jesus and he works his way backwards. Whereas in Matthew's genealogy, he starts at Abraham and he works his way forward. But with Luke, he starts with Jesus when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then I'm going to fast forward a bunch of verses. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So Adam is identified as the son of God. 
and in that sense is in the image of God. We who are in the image of God are sons and daughters of God. So it's a statement of relationship. It's a statement of identity. We are sons and daughters of God. It's a statement that this isn't just a fact, but this is an automatic relationship that we have. So we are, we are sons and daughters whether we want to be or not, no matter how good we are or bad we are at that. We, are, we come into existence in relationship with God, in covenant relationship with God. Now, this, that's just not true of any other creature or angel. They are not God's offspring in that sense, in the sense that we are. So when you take all these together, that's why we, <clears throat> we judge, in the end, we judge the angels. They don't judge us. So that's what it means to be made in the image of God. And it means more than that. There's more we could say on all of those things. It, but it means a lot. That's true for yourself, and it's true for every person you will ever meet. All those things are true of them. Now, we, you know, we, we model that well and less well, but it's all true. We are made in the image of God with those, the, with those realities. But we want to think more about that. We want to think about the, what it means to, the, to bear the image of God east of Eden, so we're no longer in Eden. So we don't think as well as Adam and Eve thought. And we don't act, at least you know, before, before the fall, we don't act as well as they acted. There's some imperfections that we experience. There's disease and decay that are part of our lives that were not part of their lives before the fall. So one question you might ask is, was the image of God lost? So when the fall happened and the world was cursed, was the image of God lost in each of us? And as so often happens, the answer is, well, yes and no. But let's start with the no part. James, uh, ch- James chapter 3 is talking about the tongue and how to use it and not use it. He says words which we can all relate to. He says, no human being can tame the tongue. And we all say amen in our hearts to that, don't we? It just does things I wish it wouldn't do. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So it's really important to get that. So people are made in the likeness of God, period. They are. It's important to get that because on this, on this side of the fall, a lot of our bodies are profoundly not working the way they, they, were, they were meant to work. And a lot of our minds are not working the way they were meant to work. And so if you hear something like uh, being made in the image of God means that we have this analytical power or ability to understand and discern and, and, and make, make decisions and think theological thoughts or whatever, if you go too far in that direction, you might think, well, that means that someone with, a, with, with perhaps a mind that doesn't work right is somehow not made in the image of God or is or less reflective of the image of God. It doesn't work that way. We are all made, as James tells us, in the likeness of God. All of our minds are troubled and imperfect. I hope you know that. All of our bodies are troubled and imperfect. And some, it's just true that in this life, some minds will never work the way that they're supposed to work. And some bodies are going to battle diseases from the womb. But nonetheless, it's true that every single person, every individual person is made in the likeness of God. 
So we really want to we really want to catch that. So was it lost? No, it wasn't. <clears throat> but then was it lost? Yes, it was lost. We know this from Colossians three. Paul is speaking about our behavior and how our behavior needs to change. There's, there's things we need to put off and there's things we need to put on. And he says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Sorry, it's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's being renewed. Well, if it, if it needs to be renewed, that means something about it was lost. Something about the image of God now that we bear is, is loss, and we need to work to renew it, to regain it. So in this case, he's talking about morality, righteousness, our, our moral abilities, our moral perfections. We need to be renewed in Christ. It was lost at the fall. We need to be renewed in Christ. And it's regained through Christ, and it's no accident that it's in Christ because he's the perfect image of God. No, nothing about uh, all of those abilities and attributes that we've, we read about is lost in Christ. He is the perfect image of God. So in Colossians 1.15, he, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What is God like? Look at Jesus. What is, how does he act? Look at Jesus. You know, there's that scene in the upper room where Philip says, show us the Father. And Jesus just says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He and the Father aren't the same thing. They are both God. So they're one God in that sense, but they are two persons of the Godhead. But he is the perfect image of the invisible God. And then Hebrews 1.3 has amazing words on this. He is the radiance of the glory of God. So you think of God in himself, God's being, and shining out, and the way it shines out is through the sun. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. Nothing's lost in translation there. He's the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's because of that work of purification that the image of God can be renewed in us. This image of God that's it's sort of lost, you know, like an old photograph where you can't quite see the image as well as you used to be able to see it. The image of God is lost. It needs to be renewed. It's renewed through Christ who made purification for sins by dying on the cross for us. You know, it's, it's one of the glorious aspects of the redemption. Christ undoing the work of the devil. And it's renewing the image of God in us. So we are specially, we are specially created in the image of God. Especially created by God. We're made in the image of God. And it's true even now. Even now, east of Eden, it's still true, even though we also work as Christians to be renewed in the image of God. <clears throat> so some applications. I'm going to list off four things and then unpack them. Let it, so this, this fact of everyone made in the image of God, let it impact how you think of people. And let it impact how you treat people 
Let it impact how you think of yourself and let it impact how you treat yourself. So let it impact how you think of people. There's no group of people, political group, certainly no racial group, where you can say they're not made in the image of God. They're all made in the image of God. There's no group that's, that's maybe defined by some uh, physical attribute or quality where you can say they're not made in the image of God. It's not true. They're all made in the image of God. So how we think of people. You know, sometimes you're, you're in, a, in a profoundly strained relationship with a person and you don't know where to begin. Well, maybe this is where you need to begin. Just start by saying, you know what? She's made in the image of God. He's made in the image of God. I can, I can at least know that. As much as I'm tempted to not believe it, they are made in the image of God, and I need to treat them with the dignity that that entails. So I need to speak to them like someone made in the image of God. I need to act toward them like they're made in the image of God. And it's also true of ourselves, how we think of ourselves. There's a lot of ways we can think of ourselves if we're, as if we're somehow damaged goods and not made in the image of God. Now, you might just be sober-minded and trying to think of yourself accurately. In, in an accurate sense, yeah, we're damaged goods. We are. We, li- we live in a fallen world and we're in fallen bodies. So, of course, we're damaged goods in that sense. And yet, nobody is so damaged that they don't image God. Which includes ourselves, how we think of ourselves. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. And so we need to speak to ourselves as if we're made in the image of God. And we need to think of ourselves and act toward ourselves like we're made in the image of God. I mean, you are a lofty, crafted piece of art. And that's not, that's not just some silly, positive thinking we're just going to make up so that we all feel better. It's true. You are an exalted, lofty piece of art made by the living God, the most amazing craftsman ever. That's you. That's me. That's everyone you've ever met. So we don't, we don't worship ourselves but also we can't despise ourselves. If that's true, we can't despise ourselves. We can't. That's wrong. I'm going to close by reading the last verse of Romans 11 and the first two verses of Romans 12. When you're thinking about who we are and what we are, these verses often feel appropriate. And this is, what do I do now? Well, we know from the end, of verse, uh, the end of chapter 11 in Romans, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then the next verse, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray.
Father, we give you praise and thanks. Jesus, Son of God, we give you praise and thanks. Holy Spirit, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you that as your people, you are in us. We are in you. We are united in, in a mysterious but real union. Father, we pray that you would lift our gaze to you, that when we're trying to figure out who we are or what we are or what you've called us to do, we pray that we would lift our gaze to you. Let us not look down or look around trying to figure out who we are based on the winds of doctrine blowing through our world right now. Lord, help us to lift our gaze to you and define ourselves by what you have told us in your word. For those tempted to despise themselves, Lord, help them to stop. Help them to be honest, but to stop despising themselves. And Lord, wherever it is that we are tempted to despise another person or a group of people, we pray that you would cause us to stop. Let us heed the word of James. With it we bless, with our tongues we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Help us, Lord, to use our tongues rightly, to use our thoughts rightly. We pray all this in Jesus' name.